Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. On today's episode, we welcome Shani Magoski, the founder of the Leadershift Project. Shani built the Leadershift Project from years of experience working with leaders at all levels and helping companies change by helping their people become better leaders of others and of themselves. In addition to decades of hard-earned corporate leadership stripes, Shani is also an author, a podcast host, and a Harley Davidson enthusiast. Enjoy the episode. Hello, folks. I'm Shani Magoski, and I'm super pleased to be on the podcast here today with Bill. I'm a leadership development consultant and coach, and my business name is the Leader Shift Project, deliberate emphasis on, uh, you know, the play on words with leadership, leader shift. And my informal tagline is that I help people in teams get their shift together. And part of why I love that is I don't take myself too seriously. A prerequisite for working with clients is that we have fun. If people have too big of a stick up their ass, can I curse a little? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. (laughs) Then it's, it's certainly not as much fun to work with them. And chances are they're not going to be as successful learning from the work and applying the work as they could be. So the irreverence is intentional. And in general, I see shift as an umbrella term as I know you do, Bill, for all of the rapid change that's happening in the world right now and leaders who aren't ready to shift, maybe even on a daily basis, are going to be left behind. And whether that's shifting strategy, shifting tactical, shifting geographic emphasis, shifting products, shifting the team that's working with them, shifting the culture in their organization, which is one of my big hotspots. And I would say the most important shifts that leaders have to make as a prerequisite to doing all those other things is to shift the old noggin, the mindset. The mindset. Absolutely. I so appreciate that you kind of just listed that out because there is... I think it's a it's a it's it's a bonding element of what we're all going through and and it it feels so unique right the change that I'm going through the shift that I'm going through I was on a call earlier today with a with a friend and an old colleague and we were we were talking about how hard it is sometimes to share the vulnerable parts of who we are but when we do open up and say hey I'm worried about this or I'm anxious about that or I'm going through this shift um it bonds us like there's a commonality 
they, they say, oh, I just went through that or I'm experiencing the same thing. Um, you know, a very personal shift I'm going through right now. I'm connecting with you here in Seattle. I'm about to move to another part of the state. And so I'm in, I'm in my, my home location and there are boxes all around that you can't see, but I'm about to go through a big shift, right? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going to live in a new place. We just bought a car. I haven't had a car for about 10 years. I've always been an urban person. We're going to go a little bit more suburban. And I'm really excited about this shift. And I'm also conscious that change as it presents itself in many different forms brings an inherent level of anxiety. And it's very much about the mind, mind shift, right? I mean, when you think about moving, everybody's like, oh, moving, right? Oh, how are you guys doing it? Are you getting friends to help you? Or are you doing it yourself? We all have that that sort of thing that we can relate to, like, oh, moving. But I took a very different mindset shift to it. And I said, I'm so excited to move. I'm so excited to be in a new place. I'm so excited to make the car trips back and forth and to to be in a new space. Um, And it's completely changed my energetic feeling around the move. Um, And I've moved a lot around the world, obviously, military and everything else. And there were some tough moves, but this one feels different, and it's completely rooted in mindset. Absolutely. It's funny you should talk about that because I also have moved around a lot. And some of it, I mean, it's all been by choice, obviously, because mm-hmm. we're always at choice. Some of it was career-related moves. Some of it were personal-related moves. And I have enjoyed every single place I've lived in, looked forward to the change of scenery, knowing that I could always go back somewhere right. if I preferred that at any given point. And, you know, so besides the excitement, because I always choose excitement over anxiety any day of the week. Um, It presents itself sometimes the same way in the body, though, right? Oh, for sure. Agitation, excitement, anxiety. The other thing I love about moving is it's a necessary or it's a a mandatory purge. Yes. Because every time you move, you're like, shit, do I have to move all this stuff again? No. You know what? I, I read nine tenths of everything on yep. Kindle. I'm getting rid of three quarters of my books or, yeah. you know, I haven't worn this thing in five years and I probably never will again because we're not going back to, you know, really formal suits in the yes. workplace. So, you know what? Consign those babies. And yep. for me, that's actually fun. It's a great feeling to go to go to a consignment, to go to a place where you can donate I remember a couple of years ago, I had two two suitcases full of stuff that I was going to you know, donate. And I actually donated the suitcases that they were in too, because I was like, I don't need the, you know, and that was back in the day when we were traveling, right, as a, as a traveling consultant. So now it feels even more liberating because you're right, there's so many things that hang in a wardrobe that I'm probably not going to wear. And then I got to ask myself, am I, am I going to move it again <laughs> to whatever's beyond this move? Um, and all of those things, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite at the, the Marie Kondo, you know, I'm not quite there, but you're absolutely right. The purge, the shedding is, um, very fulfilling. Absolutely. Well, so yeah, mindset is the most important thing that I tend to work with leaders on. As I'm sure you've experienced, it's not generally a skill that anyone was ever taught in school. And the only reason people might be more familiar with it is if they had parents who promoted that kind of thinking at home or a teacher that prompted that. Otherwise, a lot of 
people go through a good portion of their lives and careers, like never realizing something I said before, which is we're always a choice. We may not like the choices Mm -hmm. and we have to make some choice because doing nothing also a choice. Yes. Silence is also a response. And, And I tell people that's, that's a, that's a choice and it can be a very powerful one as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I find that before anyone shifts their leadership behavior, they have to first understand how they're showing up because a lot of them have blind spots that no one's ever had the courage to point out to them. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure you know, there's lots of formal and informal ways to assess that. There are 360s and, you know, there's dozens of vendors who put out great ones. My personal favorite is the Leadership Circle Profile, which divides up leadership behavior into reactive and creative, reactive being a a slightly more detailed array of fight, flight, freeze in response to fear, Mm -hmm. and the creative behaviors being more of the prefrontal cortex. When I'm triggered, I pause, maybe I'm silent, I'm thinking, I'm breathing, and then I'm responding instead of reacting. And so that's a formal way. An informal way is just through coaching so that they realize, oh my God, I never realized I was having that impact on people. And that isn't the legacy I want to leave as a leader. So help me change that. And then Mm -hmm. when they have that underlying motivation, then it's easier to introduce some of the behavioral shifts and then, of course, hold them accountable because that stuff takes lots and lots and lots of practice because there have been lots and lots and lots of years mm-hmm. <laughs> through which they have been doing the same thing over and over again and getting the Absolutely. same results. <laughs> yeah. There's a word you mentioned that really just popped off the screen and in my ears, legacy. Mm-hmm. You have a really powerful origin story, um, mm-hmm. kind of about Thank where you. you started your career and a big shift that happened to you personally. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of that, because when I listened to that first episode of your own podcast, um, it was really powerful. Um, and it it really inspired me as I was listening, um, as someone who's been through some stages of grief. Um, and it's such a teacher. Grief is a teacher. It's a companion. I walk with it. So I would love for you to share a little bit of that origin story, um, which, which I found so powerful. Yeah. Thank you for that. And and thanks for the feedback. And that's one of the reasons I tell it is I do hope it's that it's impactful for people, you know, even as, um, you know, secondary smoke mm-hmm. for, as an analogy, although that sounds like it'd be unhealthy, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I was always a straight A student and, a, you know, an overachiever you know, wanted to reach the moon. And after college at the University of Miami, I moved to New York City and got involved in investment banking. And I was working at Goldman Sachs. In fact, little pat on my own back. I was the first University of Miami graduate to get hired in Goldman Sachs investment banking division. Congratulations. Very excited to help rep the U. And when I started at Goldman, I was like on this trajectory of, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to prove myself. And I want nothing else but to be a partner of this firm. And so the first couple of years when I was a junior person and analyst, 
I did just that. I mean, I the entire first year, I worked seven days a week, like literally didn't take a day off for an entire year, was doing all-nighters on a more than regular basis. And the second year, I took a couple days off, but it was the same thing, like giving your lifeblood to the firm, but knowing that if you worked hard enough and you stood out enough, there'd be a payoff in the long run. And then from there, I got promoted to associate and I moved to the fixed income trading floor where I was selling and trading high yield bonds and, and other sort of uh, riskier corporate securities. So it might've been, um, uh, it well, equity-like things in addition to fixed income uh, junk bonds. And the first year I was on the desk, my long-term boyfriend, who I had met when he was in medical school, and then we continued to date as he went into surgery internship and surgery residency, and all this was at Mount Sinai on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, he, out of the blue, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And he was 27, I was 26, and it was devastating. We didn't see it coming. I mean, because other than the fact that he had cancer, he was healthy, right? Like there had been no signs, no weight. I mean, there was fatigue, but what surgery resident isn't exhausted all the time? I mean, it was always a battle, like who's working more hours, the investment banker or the surgery resident? <laughs> it was pretty crazy. And, and actually, that's why we didn't get married, because who had the time? And we thought we had all the time in the world to do that at our leisure. So when he was diagnosed, we were shell-shocked, and he only lived seven more months. And during that time, Goldman was so amazing. My boss and my boss's boss were so supportive. They were both parents and they were like, listen, this is a sort of a once in a lifetime situation and we don't want you to have any regrets. Do what you need to do. We're not going to dock your salary. We're not going to shrink your bonus. Come in if you want to be at the hospital or at home with him. If that's what you feel is right, like literally come and go as you please. No judgment, no repercussions. So having that freedom was huge for me to take the guilt and the like the 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 struggle away from oh do I work or do I be with Alan, and so I was able to be with him a lot and that in the hospital and then he would be in and out of the hospital at home, and I essentially became nurse. Because when he was out of the hospital, I was giving him his chemotherapy. I was giving him his blood thinners. I was giving him all his other medications. As the disease progressed, I was cleaning his bedpans, changing his diapers, cleaning up vomit, sort of working through things with him in the middle of the night when he was hallucinating. Like I became a healthcare professional, not by choice, but by by experience, if you mm -hmm. will, uh, taking care of Alan. And, you know, after he died, I was emotionally comatose for, mm -hmm. for a few years. And I didn't very easily move through the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief. I kind of stayed stuck in anger, resentment, um, bitterness, you know, all, all the negative things. And although I came to work and did a good job, 
I was kind of drowning myself in work. I wasn't taking the time to heal. I wasn't seeking therapy. I, I, I wasn't, I mean, the only thing I was doing during that time was learning how to ski, which was definitely a, a blessing. It kept me distracted and it's something I still adore to this day. In fact, I moved to Vail at one point in my life because I love skiing so much. So anyway, at some point I realized, you know what? I'm not living. And if I can't heal in New York City, because everything here reminds me of him and our relationship and the sadness. So I shifted literally across the country and took a job with a client in Los Angeles. And, and that's important for two reasons. One, I finally realized, you know, no one's going to heal me. Like I have to heal myself. And mm -hmm. I finally had the epiphany that I need to change the scenery, maybe not yeah. forever, but for the time being. So that was part one. And the other thing that really, really shifted in me was my life purpose. Like it was no longer to be a partner at an investment bank. Like, yeah. I, and for the first time, I was like, wait a minute, is, is this the legacy I want to leave? Right. And is this what I want on my gravestone? She worked her freaking ass off to make partner, but she didn't live. <laughs> And she, she didn't even spend all of her money. Like, so it just completely shifted my point of view and what I deemed important on a go forward basis, which is why I had the courage to leave a job at a firm that was best in class and a job that I would say 95% of MBA graduates would have cut off a limb to have like a seat mm -hmm. on the high yield desk, mm -hmm. mint, mint job. So all of those things kind of occurred to me that led to all of the, the changes and eventual healing. And, and it's been great. The other thing I'll add to this and close in closing out the story is that's informed almost every decision I've made since then. And I won't tell you how much older I am now than 26, but let's just say it's been a, a couple of decades plus. And, and literally it's, it's great to have that perspective of, you know what? Y you only live once. Yeah. If, if, you know, and it's that quintessential question. If you were, if you've only had a year to live, what would you do? Or, mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing where I could run that talk track through my head more often than the talk track of, oh, I have to exceed or, or excel. And what are other people going to think if I don't do this or I do that? And, and it takes away a lot of the pressure because you're like, you know what? Like what, what possibly could happen if I make the wrong choice? Am I going to die of colon cancer like Alan did? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let let me stop talking now. No, that's, I, it's a it's a long story. It it is, but it's a but it's a beautiful one, and I appreciate you sharing. Um, you know, you know, and and even the, it's so interesting to me because again, sometimes the universe does what it does in an interesting way. There's no way I could have known that you love skiing and that you moved to Vail at one point. What's really interesting to me, Shani, is my first guest that I had in 2022 was someone who left a career in consulting to become a ski instructor in Vail at, at, in her 20s and made like a complete life change choice, a shift, if you will, based on exactly what you're talking about. Now, it's a slightly different circumstance in terms of, you know, what, 
um, what that person was going through. But uh, I just find it so interesting that here we're here I am talking to my second guest, and there's these commonalities, which are really beautiful. Um, and I appreciate you sharing. I also think it's interesting that, you know, right when we were talking about starting to talk about grief, and I, I find it sometimes interesting, technology does weird things, um, because it can't necessarily hold all of who we are in our power. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that your phone rang right as we were about to tell the story about Alan. <laughs> right? So, okay. <laughs> well, you could interpret that one of two ways. And I love the way you're leaning towards interpreting it, which is like, hello. Hello. I'm here with you. Um, and, you know, of course, the other thing is I should know better than to have my devices on because I always shut it off when I start a podcast, but for some reason I didn't today. <laughs> but hey, everything happens for a reason, and I'm I'm going to lean into it and say it was a hello from Alan, or yeah. or you know, or the or the or the universe in a way. I so appreciate you sharing that story. And Thanks. the thing that's really um, evocative to me about it is, I've never been on a high yield trading floor. I mean, but I've seen movies, and when you talk about it, it's a very visceral experience, right? I mean. Investment banking is 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 an interesting uh, industry anyway, um, but it's as much about the body processing everything that's happening in addition to the head. So when so I'm curious what that shift was like for you when you finally stepped away from that, and and as you said, it involved movement right across the country or or movement in learning to ski. A lot of what we do is we process the emotions in our body, not our head. So I'm curious, like, what was that like for you? I mean, it probably feels like it was yesterday in some in some vein, right? It does. I mean, it's stereotypical that we remember things that are 20, 30, 40 years ago, but we can't remember what we had for lunch yesterday. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, in, in fact... Since I just made that joke, now I forgot the question. See, a perfect example no, no, of short-term okay. memory. Just, just curious, like, what was yeah. that like for you to make that shift away from something? Again, it's on the high yield trading floor and right. putting everything into career. It's a very um, I, visceral is the word I'm using. But mm-hmm. what was it like to literally step into another body and go to the West or go to Vale and and be right. like, like, was it immediate? Did you feel it right away? Did it take a while to catch up? Well, from a work standpoint, I didn't drift too far away. I was working on the buy side for a high yield money manager. So I was okay. very much still immersed in, in, in companies that historically had been broken or mm. at the time I was doing high yield. We were also starting to finance more startupy companies that, you know, sure. much like the IPO market in the right. mid to late nineties, you know, give it lending money to companies that had an exciting business plan, but, you know, no revenue and certainly no cash flow. So it was an interesting time to be in that market as it was transitioning from only kind of fallen angels and not so credit worthy companies to these startups and just anecdotally, the experience of seeing what these more broken fallen angels companies did wrong Mm -hmm. really helped me as I stepped into leadership in other roles and have become a consultant because, right, we learn a lot more from, (laughs) if not our own mistakes, other people's mistakes than we do when things go smoothly. Um, And then, okay, and this is also kind of a nice story. That, that job didn't work out 
I, I didn't end up liking it for a lot of reasons that aren't important. What is important is I quit after a year. Why? Because I was like, screw this. This job isn't for me. I'm not staying here, right? I've already acted once leaving a job I thought wasn't purposeful for me. And so I, I quit that and then didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I traveled around the world for a year. Wow. And okay. Was, there's a story. That was like the dream year. And it was 2001. So long before millennials introduced us to the concept of a gap year, this mm -hmm. was more of like an early midlife crisis year off. And at the time, my friends and colleagues were like, are you crazy? You're going to take a year off and you're not, you don't have a job. It, it's, it's going to be impossible to find a job when you get back. And I was like, you know what? Anyone who's a hiring manager who doesn't actually appreciate the courage that took and the learning I got from traveling to six continents, I don't want to work for that person. Amen. <laughs> so, <laughs> Amen. Um, and it was Towards the end of that year, I was on the South Island of New Zealand and I met my soon to be husband. So the story has, you know, a happyish ending where I did find love again and mm -hmm. someone that I consider to be another soulmate. And, you know, so, so that worked well. And then I ended up moving from Los Angeles to Chicago, another physical mm -hmm. move. Yep. To be with him because it was, it was basically like, Hey, you moved to Santa Monica. He's like, NFW. He's like, you moved to Chicago. I'm like, it's too cold. And we went back and forth. And finally I cried uncle. I moved to Chicago and went back to Goldman Sachs for another couple of years. And, and I, but I went in a way that again, shifted mindset. Cause when I left the first time, I was like, I can't heal here and New York is to blame. Goldman Sachs is to blame, right? Like everything mm -hmm. is to blame. Oh, you know, except me. Right. You have <laughs> this one finger pointing that way, but there's three fingers pointing back exactly. at you. <laughs> and so when I moved to Chicago, went back to Goldman Sachs, it was in the headspace of, oh my God, it was all me. It wasn't New York. It wasn't Goldman. So I went back in a much happier place. And, you know, with, with, um, less ambivalence, let's just right. say. And what killed me in Colorado really was the weather. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in Georgia and Florida, New York's weather, not nearly as cold and gray and atrocious in the winter as Chicago's. And before that lived in Santa Monica. So I had gotten used to relatively nice weather. So that's when we ended up moving to Vail, Colorado. And right. that was, okay, done with Wall Street forever. Mm -hmm. And my first job in the mountains was running one of the local TV stations in the wow. Vail Valley. And so to kind of go back to your question, th there was physical movement for mm -hmm. sure. Um, staying in the market oriented thing still, still brings, still brought a fair amount of some some anxiety about the market and buzzing because sure. like you're never done. I mean, I know yeah. we never feel done with everything, but the market goes 24 seven, you know, even when you shut down in Chicago, you know, there's stuff going on in Japan or, you know, when, before you wake up, there's stuff going on in EMEA and, mm -hmm. you know, and so you're always like 
buzzing a little bit with what did I miss? What did I miss? Did I miss a trade? Did I miss this piece of news? You know, did I not call this portfolio manager to let them know that we changed our recommendation from buy to sell on this, on this stock? Like, and, and there was a underlying anxiety that lived in my body until right. I finally left Wall Street. So I just kind of wanted to circle back to yeah, that. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, the thing I love about this this part of the story is I saw on your LinkedIn just four days ago, you're now back helping Goldman Sachs with people and culture. And they have this amazing initiative called GC 10,000 Small Businesses. So I love it because the thread like, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a testimony to when you take care of you and you take care of your body and you take care of your heart and you focus on purpose, the things that are meant to find you will find you. So can you talk about this GC 10,000 small businesses thing and like, what's it like to be working with them again in this capacity? Sure. Well, it's interesting. There, there's even more backstory to this and even more coming around from, you know, Goldman has sucked the life out of me and it's Goldman's fault, all that, to a place where, in forget the year, but there was... A, a, a guy who worked in the London office who wrote this nasty article about Goldman in the Wall Street Journal. And the title of the article was Why I Left Goldman Sachs. And he mm -hmm. just went on a rant. And, and, and he generalized and he took his experience and he painted the whole firm with that negative paintbrush. And, and I'm sure some of what he said was valid. In my experience, most of what he said was not valid. And mm -hmm. as a Goldman Sachs alum, because because once you work at Goldman Sachs, like it's in you, right? right. It, it's a culture and it's a damn good one. It does it does it have its imperfections? Of course. I learned some of the best professional lessons and leadership models of my life when I was that at that firm. And so I was personally offended by what he wrote about my alma mater mm -hmm. in that article. And I'm a writer. And so I wrote a rebuttal. Did you really? And, oh, boy. And Get the, the popcorn. I'm ready for this. The, the title of my article was why I, wish if, I, why I Wish I Would Have Stayed at Goldman Sachs Longer. Okay. And in that article... I told in a shorter version the story that you've heard of Alan and how supportive Goldman was mm -hmm. and how that planted the seed for the kind of leader I wanted to be and frankly planted the, the, the seed for eventually becoming a leadership development consultant and executive leadership coach. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we can pin that for a second and come back to it. Sure. Um, and so that got. It was actually supposed to be in Forbes, and at the last minute, something really ugly happened in the world, and the article shifted to yeah. take up space that had been allocated, or sorry, the, the cover story ended up shifting to take up the space that my article was going to take up, and so it got canceled at the last minute. So it ended up getting published by the Huffington Post, and it didn't even matter where because that stuff which meant, hits. Which means it probably got more reads, to be honest. It, you know what? It, it probably did, and you know because everybody has Google searches, keyword searches. Right. Everybody saw it, and Goldman picked up on it right away, and and I started to get calls and emails and text messages from former colleagues going, great article, thanks for writing it. 
And, and then I got a call from the head of alumni relations at Goldman, who I worked with for years on mm -hmm. the fixed income trading floor. His name was Phil Derivoff. And he was like, thank you so much for writing that article. You have no idea how much it lifted the spirits of, um, uh, you know, the employees here who are suffering from very low morale. You know, mm -hmm. it must have been during like the economic downturn and people yeah. were blaming Goldman for it and stuff. That's kind of what it was. And, you know, they had posted it on the intranet. And so, you know, thousands of people who I don't even know saw it. And then I would meet people two, three, four years later. And, you know, we talk about Goldman and, and I'd say, you know, I was the one that wrote that article defending Goldman. He's just, and they'd be like, that was you. I remember that article. And, yeah. and so that led to Phil introducing me to the head of Pine Street, which is their leadership development arm for managing directors and partners. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I was invited to do some coaching for, and people who had just made MDs and people who are high potential MDs shooting mm -hmm. towards partner. And that lasted a couple of years. And, and then, and then the leadership changed in that group. And so that went dormant. So fast forward to fourth quarter last year. And I am coincidentally through a friend of a friend introduced to someone who also does some part-time consul consultative work with Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses. Mm -hmm. And just for the benefit of your listeners, that is a philanthropic effort from Goldman through the Goldman Sachs Foundation where they give millions and millions of dollars to worthy causes and charities and they've come up with their own programs. The first 10,000K program was 10,000 uh, um, small 10,000 women, and it was funding women owned businesses. And that was so successful that then they decided to do Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses. And they have different regions in the country. And in each region, Goldman partners with a local community college to execute the program. So in the New York area, LaGuardia College in Long Island City is the partner. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the group that I was interviewing with to teach people and culture. And essentially, you know, went through a bunch of very, very challenging interviews, some of the most challenging I've been through. And I was selected to teach those modules. And I'm over the moon because like small and medium sized businesses, that's the engine of the economy. And everyone Absolutely. pays so much attention to the Fortune 500 and what they're doing. Are people going out of the, staying out of the office? They're going back into the office. You know, are they getting bonuses? Well, how about the small business owners who have kept the economy alive for hundreds of years who are really challenged now to maintain their businesses and grow their businesses and who also haven't had the benefit of the kinds of leadership training, even management training and, and training on financial and marketing and all of those things. And that's what this program gives them in the, the contingency for receiving the grant money is that they go through this nine module program. And I teach two of those, two that's of those modules. Great. So again, I'm so long winded, but I, I like giving no. like the whole story. 
this is not long-winded. This is painting a beautiful picture. And that, the, the reason I love it, I mean, this this whole podcast is about echoing stories and it's about storytelling, the power of storytelling. I love it because you're you're literally helping people who are listening visualize what you're talking about. And I just think it's so great that as part of the contingent of them getting that, they go through this module and they get to learn and be trained and learn about the power of purpose and being a people first leader and the importance of culture and living that. Um, and then they get to bring it back to their own small business. And little by little, right, we kind of help the world through these ripple effects. So 100%. I'm super excited for that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I am too. And their stats are pretty mind blowing. It's like something over a little over half that grow their businesses within six months. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know what the stats are for longer than that. I suspect it takes some companies or some businesses a little longer. And it's something like 70% of businesses that go through the program together end up doing business together. Yes, right. Because we go, we go farther together, right? We, we, we go faster or sometimes alone, but we go farther together. And I think what's really interesting in this time of pandemic, I mean, if this hasn't taught us, I mean, some of the most powerful work I've ever done in my life was the, the past couple of years working with small businesses, business owners. And I, I got to, from a change management standpoint, work sort of in that middle ground between um, financial institutions, technology companies, and small business owners. Because as you know, when the pandemic hit and we were trying to get federal aid to people and these loans and, and expedite them and get the money in the hands of the right people, all of that was a technology challenge. All of that was a policy challenge, a financial challenge. You know, right? how this works. And some of that was the most incredible work I got to do working round the clock weekends, building to your point, training and demos and leadership and being on phone calls with institutions and business, small business owners and farmers and agricultural people to guide them on how to talk to their Congress people and say, this is why we need this. And this is where the impact is happening. And I'm so grateful to have been at the intersection of that. And and that's what, when I read that post you had on LinkedIn, that's what it reminded me of is like, that is, as you say, the engine of this country. Um, and we're even seeing it in parts of Europe and, and Middle East, in Middle East and Africa and Asia as well, where people are turning inward and saying, I want to run my own business the way I want to um, because of purpose. And that goes back to ex exactly what you're doing now, right? With leadership and working with people. So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what your, what your life is like now? And it seems like you have all these wonderful um, sort of serendipitous moments that happen because you are following purpose, yes? Yes. And, you know, some people don't believe in serendipity and the universe and, and so forth. And, and that's fine. I don't think you have to believe in that as it seems like you do, and I certainly mm -hmm. do, to understand that we create our own opportunities. Yeah. And part and part of purpose is being purposeful in going towards what makes us happy, what resonates for us, what makes us feel good. And 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 yes, and then you're gonna attract what you're working mm -hmm. towards more than if you don't. <laughs> right. So it's really just that simple. And I, you know, I just, I couch it because, 
you know, every once in a while I come across someone who's like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, we, we live, we die. There's, you know, there's no intervention. And it's like, you know what? Fine. I'm not going to judge your belief. Although it sounded judgy the way I just kind of said that. I didn't mean to. I was just mimicking them. Um, you know, so it doesn't really matter whether you're religious or not religious, spiritual or not spiritual. I think everybody can take away the message that we create our own destiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's so interesting because one of the other things that really stood out to me was, um, I think the image on your LinkedIn is, is it you on a motorcycle? Yes. So I have this image now of you just kind of out on the open road on the motorcycle. So can you talk to us a little bit about what, what that freedom is like and how, how that shows up in your life? Yes. And it really is freedom. And I would say it's not something I ever would have considered if Alan hadn't have died. Okay. Because, you know, a nice Jewish girl who works on Wall Street does not ride a Harley Davidson. Well, who said? <laughs> right. Where is that rule written down? Right. So my, you know, the man I met in New Zealand who I ended up marrying, Brad, he had been riding dirt bikes his whole life. He had lived in very suburban Chicago and as an adult was riding motorcycles. And after two or three times of, of riding as a passenger behind him on the motorcycle, I was like, screw this. I want to ride my own bike. I mean, it's like, first of all, this seems like a lot of fun. And second of all, like, I don't know, it was like tweaking my body to kind of lean over. Yeah. And I was like, I have enough reasons that my body's unhappy with me. I don't need to make another one. So I got my motorcycle, uh, whatever thing for your driver's license th through taking a course, got my own motorcycle. And when we were living in Vail, we used to do these amazing rides throughout Colorado and Wyoming. We went up to Sturgis twice mm -hmm. from, from Vail, which is a people watching extravaganza. I bet. And, and, and yeah, and so it's a bit unexpected given the career path that I've chosen. And it's one of the reasons I have it for a little bit of shock value as my LinkedIn profile picture, because A, don't make assumptions about people. Yep. And B, picture speaks more than a thousand words, right? Like just looking at that picture tells you something about me that I don't play by the rules. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting because um, it really stood out to me. And I love that way you described the way what it's like to be on the back of a motorcycle and you have to tweak your body. Um, I have two very, very dear friends. Both of them are um, motorcycle owners. One is in San Francisco and one is sort of between DC and Baltimore. And um, I've been on the back of their bikes um, a, a few times. And I think you'll appreciate this because, um, I mean, it's no surprise, right? I'm a military guy and I'm a little bit of a control freak at times. So here I am on the back of a beautiful BMW motorcycle in San Francisco with my dear friend. And, you know, it's probably been at that point 30 years since I've been on the back of a motorcycle. The last time I was on one, I was 10 in Guatemala. I was on the back of a dirt bike. Uh, I fell off the back of it when somebody was trying to do a jump with me on the back of it. And I hadn't been on one since. So I was a little skittish. So I get on the back of this beautiful BMW bike and we're going through San Francisco up and down the hills. And it's beautiful, stunning. I mean, what a way to see San Francisco. 
But the funny thing is we stopped at one point and he said, dude, you got to stop fighting me. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, you are fighting every movement of this bike and me. He's like, when we turn, sorry, the microphone, when we turn, I need you to go into the turn. I need you to lean into the turn. He's like, you are leaning out of the turn. You are trying to take gravity the other way. That's not how physics works. And I'm like, I know that's not how physics works, but every bone in my body says, if I lean with you, we're going to fall over. And he's like, do you trust me? And it was like that moment in Aladdin, you know, where Aladdin looks at Jasmine, do you trust me? And she goes, what? He goes, do you trust me? And I said, yes. And he goes, all right, let's do this again. And the second part of that ride, Cheney, was amazing. Like it was like I was seeing a different city. I was in different because I was just going with the flow. And the same thing happened on the back of a Harley with my friend who lives between DC and Baltimore. He is a former Marine. And he said, I mean, he didn't even last 10 minutes. And he pulled us over to the side. and He's like, dude, get the hell off my bike. I can't have you on this bike. You want to be in the front. You're trying to drive the bike and you can't. This is a huge piece of machinery. This is a beast. You are a guest. You must respect it and you got to stop. And I said, I don't know how. And he said, okay, just again, do you trust me? And so both of those examples on both coasts remind me the freedom of what is uh, to be on a motorcycle, to be in the open air and the amount of machinery that is literally between your legs. Um, and I think about those experiences all the time. Um, there's not many people I would trust being on the back of a bike with those two are, and it, it taught me so much about where I still resist and where I still try and control things. And when you do, you actually miss the incredible views and you miss the moments and the bonding. And so I, I saw that picture of you and I was like, I'm definitely going to ask her a question about the Harley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I love that story because it, you know, it, 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 it's just emblematic of so many places where we try to literally fight gravity. Skiing's mm -hmm. the same way. Yeah. People are inclined to lean back when they're going down the hill. Huge mistake. No, you have to go with gravity and yeah. lean down towards the hill in order to go. Because if you lean back, you're going to lose your balance. And especially if you lean back in powder, you're not even going to go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I love, I love that. I love that that is your LinkedIn sort of, Hey world, this is me. And just when you think you figured me out, you haven't. Um, so one sort of last question I would love to ask you, if you were to take someone on a ride and I don't know if people go on rides with you, let's just say like, you know, maybe they're on a motorcycle or maybe they're with you. If you were to take them on a ride anywhere that you've been on a motorcycle ride that you absolutely love and you'd want to kind of guide them or introduce them or show them, what would that be? Where would okay. that be? Okay. One of my favorite rides is through Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the way I like to do it is, so I'd leave from Vail and then go up this very twisty, turny, switchbacky, mountainy road. And then you cut east um, and then you enter... Rocky Mountain National Park. And, and that part is beautiful in and of itself. And there's almost mm -hmm. no one on the road. So you can go fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank thankfully, my mom's passed away. And she can't hear me say that. <laughs> Not thankfully. I, I wish she wasn't passed away. But, you know, she would always get nervous. when Oh, I she's hearing it in a different way. Maybe the phone will ring again. <laughs> right? Let me see. Let me turn it back on. Hi, Mom. Um and and then you enter Rocky Mountain National Park from the on the west side of the park, 
and well, okay, it's, it's all right. So that's not my phone being on. I have a two o'clock alarm that goes off every day to remind me to take three deep breaths in the middle of the day, just for a, a, like refreshing and, you know, even just taking my eyes away from the computer for 10 seconds. So that's what that was. But well, we can do that if you want to you know, do that. Okay. Sure, let's do it. And, and those of you listening, you can't see, but I've got a cast on my left hand because part of the downside of being as physically active as I always have is I needed surgery on my left thumb because I was bone on bone. So as I breathe, mm. I've got one hand and a cast. Yeah. So yeah, let's do three deep breaths. And touche mm. on the phone going off again. Yeah. Um, so anyway, finishing up the story about Rocky Mountain National Park. So wh where when you're riding that road is called High Ridge Road. It is the highest continuously paved road in the country. Wow. So you're at massive elevation at the top of the park, and you do come down a little bit, but Rocky Mountain National Park is at very, very high altitude. I've rock climbed there as well. And you were just going through this like amazing, glorious scenery. And then you, as you come towards the east side of the park, you enter the most adorable town called Estes Park, and, I love Estes Park. Isn't it fabulous? And so you stop at the Mexican food place to warm up because it'll get, even if it's summer, it'll get chilly on that ride. You've got to layer up and and have some Mexican food to warm yourself back up. And then typically I go south through Boulder and then take I-70 back home. And that is beautiful. a mostly full day ride. Yeah. And it's incredible. So that's what I would love for people to experience. Well, thank you for sharing that and guiding us through. I'll share one last story with you that you'll appreciate about Estes Park. So years ago when I was an intern at Sun Microsystems um, in Bloomfield, Colorado, which just had those <gasps> terrible fires. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Really, really bad fires. Um, I was an intern in, at Sun Microsystems in Bloomfield and the team I was working on took me to go see the movie Blair Witch Project. You probably remember that movie. Yes. We went to go see the 10 p.m. showing because, you know, there was like round the clock showings. Well, afterwards, we were driving back from wherever we saw it to Lafayette, Colorado, where I was staying. And they decided to go into Estes Park and play a prank on me. And that oh, prank no. involved pushing me out of the vehicle in the middle of Estes Park and driving away. So imagine having just watched Blair Witch Project. Lovely. Dropped off in Estes Park and they take off and you're standing there in the middle of this beautiful, you know, forest and your eyes are adjusting to the darkness and you start to hear things and see things and branches snapping and you've just watched this, you know, really scary movie. Um, needless to say, they came back about 20 minutes later and they thought it was really funny. But uh, and if they're listening to this, I am here to tell them it was not funny. It was not funny. <laughs> it was a very tough experience. <laughs> Uh, but I will forever have Estes Park, you know, in my mind because of that story. Um, and I've seen it during the day many times. It's much better during the day than it is at night. Absolutely. Um, and maybe don't see it after you watch Blair Witch Project. <laughs> Great advice for your listeners, Bill. 
Yeah. So thank you. This was such a joy to connect with you, Shani. I really appreciate you sharing all of these stories. Um, and what's next for you? I mean, where, where can people connect to you, find out about the work you're doing and support um, all the serendipity that you're involved oh, in? Thank you. Well, the website is theleadershiftproject.com. Okay. My Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are all under that handle. My LinkedIn account's actually my personal one, and that's just Shani Magoski, S-H-A-N-I, M is a Mary, A-G-O-S-K-Y. And my email is Shani at theleadershiftproject.com. I also have a podcast, which I would mm -hmm. love to have you on at some point, which I is called that. The Leadershifter Show. I call my followers and people who listen to, you know, me, you know, my spiels about whatever I call them, leadershifters. So I love that, like shapeshifters, like right. Harry Potter. I love it. Yep. So it's The Leadershifter Show and, you know, it's on... Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you know, it's on all the podcast platforms. Sure. So the multiple and sundry ways to reach I love me. it. Awesome. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. I'm really glad the universe found its way to connect us. Um, Likewise, and... I enjoyed being on your show. It was really yeah. fun. Thank you. It was, it was very enjoyable. Thanks for sharing the stories and the work you're doing. Um, and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Okay, terrific. Thanks. Right. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Shaney. I know that a couple things I come away from that conversation with. The first profound reminder is that it is never too late to shift. As a leader, as an individual, you have the power of choice and you get to decide and choose what shifts you make in work and in life that bring you closer to your purpose and make you happier and experience joy and fulfillment. And I know this could be pretty radical, but I believe everybody deserves that. Uh, the second thing I come away from this discussion with is the importance of learning from setbacks and things that you don't necessarily expect to happen in your life. And as Shaney might agree, getting back on that motorcycle and continuing on that journey, finding that highest paved road in the continental United States and taking in the views. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion captured with Shaney. And if you wanted to follow her, as she said, she's got a great podcast. And you can also look her up at the Leadership Project. <laughs>